Well, good morning, church. Let me invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Colossians this morning. We continue our study in the book of Colossians. Uh, I will tell you uh, what we'll consider this morning is uh, most of it I think you'll find very familiar and truths in which we, we cherish, kind of the core of our faith. And so today, as, as many Sundays are, is, is one of reminder and celebration of what we hold dear and true. And so I trust you'll be blessed by that as I have been blessed in my studies of it. I do want to uh, encourage you, by the way, as I did last week, uh, the second service, um, and, and just uh, encourage you by way of encouraging me, if I could put it that way. Um, I'm going to pray in a moment. We've already had a couple prayers this morning. Uh, I don't know if you noticed that. And uh, I, I think it's entirely appropriate for when someone's leading the church in prayer, and we pray, of course, in Christ's name, for you then, the congregation, to agree with that prayer. Let the man who's praying, the woman who's praying, know you're praying by simply saying amen. All right, do you all understand? Amen simply means so be it. And so um, I, I think I'm going to be beating this drum for a while until we get the hang of it, okay? So this probably may not be the last time you heard uh, me encourage you. Once I'm done praying, you and I, we all together will say amen, and it will be glorious, I trust. And so uh, here we are in Colossians chapter 2, and our sermon this morning will be taken from uh, verses 13 through 15. Hear now the word of God. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Our Father, we're thankful for your word and the reminder it is of these glorious truths, the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. The, re the reality is, Father, in, in just a little while, every one of us will be dead. And we will be standing face to face with King Jesus. That is coming for all of us. And on that day, all the lingering doubts will be gone. And we will come before you. And it is my prayer this morning, in particular based upon the passage in which we will consider that no one who hears me today would be unprepared to meet you. So we, your people, pray that you would use this church and this sermon and your word to bring great certainty into our hearts. We don't want to play games with you. And then one day, as we just playing through life, stand before you unprepared. Let us today greet you as our Savior and Lord. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It was in the year 560 B.C. That was the time in which King Josiah was reigning in Judah. That began, 560 B.C. began the reign of King Croesus, who was the final king of Lydia. He was fabulously wealthy. 
It was said that he derived his wealth from King Midas himself. He would be the first king ever to use gold as coinage. Sometime after Croesus began the reign of Caesar Augustus, the mightiest of all Roman emperors, he instituted a system of government that would last long than any other system of government heretofore. King Richard the Lionhearted led the Third Crusade, an enormous and strong man. He once met with a Muslim sultan to decide the fate of Jerusalem, at which he took out his massive sword and a bar of iron, and with a single stroke cut the bar of iron in half. The sultan was not impressed. He threw up a down pillow in the air, took out his saber, and sliced through it with one swing. Genghis Khan of Mongolia was known for his cruelty and his great hunger for the size of his kingdom. By the time he died, he lived over the largest kingdom ever on earth up to that point. Hun Wu of China, the founder of the Ming Dynasty in the 14th century AD, was known for his love of education. He set up more schools in China than ever before as he trained and educated future leaders. Prince Henry, the navigator of Portugal, set up schools of navigation. And because of him, navigators sailed all over the world, including Christopher Columbus and his great discovery of the new land. In fact, because of Prince Henry, uh, the nation of Brazil continues to speak Portuguese. Suleiman the Magnificent was the lawgiver of the Ottoman Empire during the time of Martin Luther. He brought his kingdom up to the very walls of Austria. Shah Jahan of India was renowned for his architecture, leaving behind the Taj Mahal as a memorial to his dead wife. Louis XIV of France, the Sun King, was known for his extravagance and his luxury, even building the, the wonderful Palace of Versailles. Peter the Great of Russia was a, quite the opposite to Louis, was a humble man of incredible work ethic. He would wear the common clothes of a peasant, constantly find him down at the shipyard talking to men about the building of the ship, or even, perhaps even alongside a blacksmith working with him. Frederick the Great of Prussia was a military genius. His military battles continued to be studied even at West Point Academy. All these amazing and accomplished rulers have indeed left their mark upon this world. Whether you know their name or not, we are influenced by them. And of course, we could add others to this list. And yet, I don't care how many people you add to the extraordinary list of kings and monarchs, the list would not be complete without King Jesus. It is Philip Schaff who says of Jesus of Nazareth, he without money and arms conquered more millions than Alexander, Caesar, Muhammad, and Napoleon. Without science and learning, he shed more light on the things human and divine than all philosophers and schools combined. Without the eloquence of education, he spoke words of life such as never were spoken before or since and produced effects which lie beyond the reach of any orator or poet. Without writing a single line, he set more pens in motion and furnished more themes for sermons, discussions, learned volumes, works of art, sweet songs of praise than the whole army of great men of ancient and modern times. He concludes, there never was in this world a life so unpretending, modest, and lowly in its outward form and condition, and yet producing such extraordinary effects upon all ages, nations, and classes of men. The annals of history produce no other example of such complete and astonishing success in spite of the absence of those material, social, literary, and artistic powers which are in indispensable to the success of mere men quite an accomplishment for a traveling rabbi in Jerusalem and Judea. 
And of course, we could list other accomplishments of the Lord Jesus Christ, could we not? And the ones that are listed here by Philip Schaff are all the accomplishments and the impact in which Christ has made upon this natural world. But we could even go beyond that, I believe. What of the world unseen? What of, what of just not the earthly world, but a spiritual world? We find out, according to the passage in front of us, that yes, even Christ is impacted there as well. For we read in verse 15 of the passage before us, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. Of course, we know this to be a reference to spiritual powers in our study of Colossians. And put them to open shame, Paul adds, by triumphing over them in the cross. You see, Christ defeated our unseen adversaries. King Jesus defeated the undefeatable enemies. You say, by what means? Well, we're told, aren't we not? By triumphing over them in him, or perhaps your translation, which I prefer, would say in the cross. He is the, the cross is where Christ's ultimate triumph is found. I would suggest to you that there is no greater display of kingly power ever in this world than the cross of Jesus. That nothing has ever happened in this world. Let me repeat that. Nothing has ever happened in this world that is more powerful than the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. And so you could count your gold and establish your government and swing your sword and form your empire and build your schools and sail the seas and write your laws and erect your palaces and lead your armies. And you could do this and 10,000 times more. And I tell you, the vast accumulation of all of it is like a child playing in the dirt compared to the accomplishments of King Jesus. And today we have the great privilege and honor to consider just a few of them. And I hope we will indeed not simply consider but celebrate them in our hearts as we do. We saw last week from our passage in Colossians, we discover what God had done in us. Remember that? And I think it's summarized here in verse 13, beautifully and powerfully when we read, and you, were, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh God made alive together with him. This is what God has done done for us. We were dead, spiritually dead. God in his great grace to us, inside us, in us, made us alive together with Christ. That's what he's done in us. Today, we continue studying this passage and we discover not what he has done in us, but what he has done for us, on behalf of us. So we move from the subjective experience of the gospel to the objective experience of the gospel. So we'll consider three acts Objective historical acts that Christ did 2,000 years ago that are to your eternal benefit. We see, first of all, that he, our trespasses are forgiven, our debt is canceled, and the authorities have been disarmed. We'll begin by considering that our trespasses are forgiven, for we read the end of verse 13, and we see these words written. Having forgiven us all our trespasses. Now, I won't spend a lot of time here uh, talking about forgiveness. I think we kind of talk about forgiveness every week on a weekly basis, don't we? So you should be familiar with this. So let me simply remind you this morning that, Christian, your sin against God is forgiven. Your trespasses, your transgressions against his holy law have been forgiven. Now, in case there's one here this morning, if I could just preach to the one that might be here, the one on our live stream, and the rest of you can listen. There may be one here this morning that 
has trouble understanding that or even believing that. And they look at their life and they say, well, I've just done too much in order to be forgiven from God. You might protest to this statement that your sins are forgiven. You might protest by saying, no, not my sins. If you knew my sins, Pastor, you would know that my sins transcend even the forgiveness of God. And I just simply want to tell you this morning, yes, your sins too are forgiven if you are in Christ Jesus. It was on the night that Jesus was raised from the dead, that great Easter evening, and according to Luke's gospel, he gathered his apostles together and told them these words, repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in my name to all nations, beginning with Jerusalem. Let's start in Jerusalem. Now I remind you, it was just three days earlier, or four days earlier, that in Jerusalem, this is the town that turned on Jesus, that Jerusalem was the town that demanded his murder, that Jerusalem was the town that jeered and heckled and laughed when he was being tortured and killed. And so in some sense, we expect Jesus to say, forgiveness and repentance of sin should be proclaimed in my name to all nations, and then finally with Jerusalem, right? Once you get to all the nations, then you go back to Jerusalem and to let them know. But Jesus instead says, no, I want you to start with the very ones who killed me. Start there in Jerusalem. John Bunyan, the great Baptist preacher, was somewhat astonished by this, uh, th this reality that we're starting in Jerusalem, that he wrote um, his work called Jerusalem Sinner Saved. Jerusalem Sinner Saved, in which he imagined a conversation between someone in Jerusalem and Peter preaching the gospel to them. And the person, the, the citizen of Jerusalem, protests but, and saying, but I bore false witness against Jesus in his trial. And Peter responds, there is grace for all who believe. But I cried out, crucify him. Peter responds, I am to preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins to every one of you. But I spat in his face. But I mocked him when in anguish as they pinned him to that tree. Is there room even for me? Peter responds, there is forgiveness for everyone who believes. Yes, even you. Others might protest, well, not, certainly not, you know, some might say, well, not, not me, not my sins. Perhaps more frequently someone will say, what about this sin? And some might protest, well, not all my sins, certainly not all my sin. And so I once again just simply direct you back to verse 13. And you might even want to circle this glorious word, three-letter word, if it's meaningful to you at all, having forgiven us. And you see it there? All. All our trespasses, there is no sin that is too great, too dark, too horrendous. All sin may be forgiven. It is Tom Pepinia who some time ago was part of a mafia family. He was a thief, uh, an extortionist, and even a murderer and killed many, many people. In fact, he was so cold and hard that it was said that even criminals would not look him in the eye. And yet in Tom Pepinia's life, God began to speak into his heart through the words and the ministry of a pastor telling him that forgiveness is found in Jesus. Papania had uh, concluded uh, that such forgiveness was beyond him. He had done too much. There was too much sin to forgive. In fact, Papania was so racked with guilt one night, the great mafia uh, murderer held a gun to his head. And as the muzzle was pressed to his temple, he had declared that he was, he knew God was going to kill him eventually. He was going to actually take that privilege away from God and do the deed himself. Before he had 
uh, the time to pull the trigger uh, why that gun was pressed hard into his temple, he said the phone rang. He answered the phone, and it was that pastor who was inviting him to come to church that evening. Well, Papania was enraged. So I finally got up the courage to do this, and this man interrupts me. And so he decided to go to church that night, and he would there, in front of the congregation, shoot the pastor dead before he turned the gun upon himself. And so he entered the church and sat in the back of the sanctuary and listened to the congregation sing and listened to an elder pray, listened to the pastor preach. And afterwards, he was invited, that pastor invited him back to his office, Papania's resolve somewhat buckling. The pastor looked him in the eye in his office when so many would not look this man in their eye and he said, Tom, you need to receive Jesus Christ. You need to trust in him. He just burst out laughing. And by the time he had finished laughing, Papania said, if these people knew who I am, they would throw me out and throw you out for inviting me. These people don't want me. God does not want me. I've done too much. At this point, the pastor opened to the book of Colossians, chapter 2 and verse 13, and read these words, having forgiven all our sins. That message began to penetrate Tom Papania's life. He fell down to his knees in front of that pastor, began to weep and confess his sin to his pastor, pouring out his, his troubled soul. Later he would say, I found Jesus. I have been searching for him all my life. Now that I have him, I'm not letting him go. He not only confessed his sin to the pastor and, and, and indeed confessed his sin to God, he then shortly thereafter went down to the police station and confessed his sin to the police, for which he went to jail for a very long time where he served as this amazing evangelist leading many, many other prisoners to Christ. You say, well, what about this sin or what about that sin over there? Or what about this sin over here? I'm telling you, God will forgive all your sin, all of it. My dear Grammy, who was gone to the Lord some years ago, uh, was along with my granddad, were grapefruit farmers in Southern California. And there was one night, some four or five decades ago, there was a knock upon their door, and it was a, a man and a woman and their newborn child, uh, immigrants from Mexico, undoubtedly illegal immigrants, all around, of course, growing up in Southern California, that was part of the culture down there. And my Grammy, they, uh, they, they looked at her and said, can we, we have no place to stay. Can we come and stay in your home? And my Grammy turned them away, said, you know, you can't stay here. And I'll tell you, for the next four decades, she never got beyond that sin. I don't know how many times I told my, my Grammy that she has forgiveness in Christ. She's been forgiven of that sin. She bore that burden all the way to her grave. I wonder, do you have something that is plaguing you like that today? Is there some sin you have committed in your past and you cannot get beyond it? I'm telling you, he forgave all your sins. All of them. There is no sin in which he will not forgive for those who are in Christ. What is it we sometimes sing? My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the, yeah, there it is, but the whole is nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. So not, so, so away with the uh, objection, well, no, no, not, not my sins. And away with the objection, no, not all my sin. And then one last one, if we can, and we'll do so quickly. No, no, not his sin or not her sin. As if we now have the right to withhold sin of uh, forgiveness from those who sin against us. 
Christian, you have been sinned against. Some of you severely sinned against. What must you do? You have been forgiven in Christ. You know it. You must extend that forgiveness to others. He who has forgiven all your sin, you now must forgive those who sin against you. In case you're unsure of this, just glance your eyes over to chapter 3. We don't even have to leave the book. And you'll note in, ver note in verse 13 that we are told, and we'll consider this in depth, I trust, when we get here, that we are bearing with one another. And here it is, if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other. You are to forgive each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. What is it we sometimes pray? Or in fact, we often pray when we take the Lord's Supper, when we're done. Do we not pray, as Christ has taught us, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Our trespasses are forgiven. Secondly, you'll note that Paul says, our debt is canceled. Our debt is canceled. Verse 14, we read, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Now you notice the connection between these two ideas. The end of verse 13, having forgiven us all our trespasses, verse 14, by canceling this record of debt. So you might ask, well, how can Jesus forgive me? He does so by canceling our debt, and he does so on the cross. The ESV, from which I'm preaching this morning, has this little phrase here, the record of debt. You see that there in verse 13, canceling the record of debt. Uh, that, that phrase is translated all over the place. It's, the literal word is handwriting, having canceled the handwriting. Um, some translations say having canceled the written code. Uh, I don't know if you have one of those translations. I'm not sure I like that, that, that translation. That kind of implies he canceled the law. Did, did God cancel the law on the cross? I think we would all emphatically say, no, of course he didn't. You shall not murder. That's still a good idea, right, to honor your parents. Still what God wants you to do, not commit adultery, don't lie, have no other gods before you. The law is still there, it's still perfect revelation of God's will. And so, we're, so it's not so much the written code, that is the law, so we, we have, what is it, this record of debt. Maybe your translation says a certificate of debt. This is a reference to our record of indebtedness to God that we have incurred by violating God's law. This word, this word is is used to refer to what we would say, what we call an IOU. And we had an IOU to God. We had a debt to God which requires repayment. And Paul tells us that this debt, this certificate of debt, record of debt, stood against us. You see that phrase there in our verse as well. It stood against us because, uh, because the record justified judgment that would come upon us. So once again, just turn, look over to Colossians chapter 3, and we read in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now note verse 6 of Colossians 3. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God is coming. See, this debt stood against us. And yet what we read gloriously, that it, this debt that stood against us has been counseled, which means the wrath of God has been removed. The debt has been paid. Now, I think we would do well just to kind of ponder this for a moment, to remind ourselves of this glorious truth. In fact, there's this powerful scene in the book of Daniel that captures some of these ideas. You might do well to try to imagine it, this, this picture as Daniel describes it in your mind's eye, and maybe even beyond that, kind of put yourself in place in this scene. For Daniel, 
writes in Daniel 7 and verse 9, I watched as thrones were put in place, and the ancient ones sat down to judge. His clothing was white as snow, his hair like the purest wool. He sat on a fiery throne with wheels of blazing fire, and a river of fire was pouring out, flowing from his presence. A thousand thousands served him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. Then the court began its sessions, and the books were opened. What is in those books? Well, we read from Scripture that those books record everything you have done, all you have said, all you have thought. Can you imagine what it would be like to stand before that judge in that scene on this great day? To stand before him as a defendant. Can you imagine what it would be like to stand before him as he is about to render a verdict upon you? Some time ago, I spoke to someone who served as a character witness in a a criminal court. Uh, She she described the moments of the verdict before before the the verdict was announced that there was this weighted tension in the room. It was like the very air was sucked out of the room and and you you didn't know whether you would look at the floor or look at the judge or where to cast your eyes. It was almost as if time had slowed down. And she felt this even though she wasn't on trial. And she felt this though that the defendant wasn't standing before a perfect God but an imperfect man. And she felt this though the man's alleged crimes were against the state and not the creator of all things. And she felt this way even though this man faced a maximum sentence of four years, not four trillion years. What will it be like to stand before God and await his verdict on you. I wonder, what will you say on that day? What will your defense be? Just imagine for a moment that you, you sin three times a day. You sin three times. Now, my guess is you probably sin more than that, okay? Uh, I'm, I'm feeling generous, okay? So let's just say three times a day. At the end of a year... That would be approximately a thousand sins, a thousand transgressions of God's law. Let's say you live around 70 years. So now you have accumulated 70,000 individual violations of the law of God. What will you say on the day in which you stand before that judge with 70,000 violations against you? What, what are you going to say? Well, I'm a good person. Well, I helped my, the widow neighbor that one time, or I gave some money when the tsunami hit and, and, and all the rest. I mean, how silly is it going to be in this courtroom to plead your own merit with 70,000 charges against you for you to say, yeah, but I lived a pretty good life. I'm a pretty decent person. In light of that, how precious is it to read that this record against us, my Christian brothers and sisters, has been canceled. It has been wiped clean. I mean, we were as good as condemned. It was an open and shut case. The law judging us was impeccable. The charges against us were substantial. The evidence 
convicting us was insurmountable, the witnesses opposing us reliable, the accuser denouncing us indisputable, the arguments damning us irrefutable, the defense supporting us disgraceful, the judge assessing us irreproachable, the sentence before us eternal, the prison awaiting us unbearable, the guilty verdict on you undeniable. And so what joy is there to, be hear, to hear that the charges have been dropped, that the evidence has been tossed aside, that the witnesses have been silenced, the accuser has been muzzled, the argument has stopped, the defense has rested his case, the verdict has been rendered, not guilty, not guilty forever and ever and ever and ever for you who are in Christ, God's verdict on you is not guilty. All of it has been taken away. Say, so how can this be? How can that possibly be? Well, 2,000 years ago, with no help from you, God canceled your record. God took all your sins, and instead of holding them before you and using them to condemn you, he nailed it to a cross where his son was pinned for you. As you read the end of verse 14, we see this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Every fleshly feet, every lustful thought, every impure motive, every slanderous word, every selfish act, every outburst of anger, every thankless moment, every deed in my life that should provoke the wrath of God, all of it, every last bit of it has been canceled. Christ took the penalty for them all. His punishment satisfied the necessary demands of justice, though not for everyone. Some are in Christ, some are outside of Christ. And on that last day, Jesus himself will divide humanity into the condemned and to those who are not condemned. What is it we read in John 3.16? You, you know this verse, of course. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And some of you even know the, the next verse, verse 17. For God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And do you know verse 18? 18 tells us whoever believes in him, there it is, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And so I ask you this morning, whether you're in this room or watching through the internet, who are you? Are you in Christ Jesus or are you out of Christ Jesus? Are you not condemned or are you condemned already? It was Charles Spurgeon who preached some time ago saying, I can understand a man doubting whether he is truly converted or not, but I cannot understand the apathy in resting quiet till he has solved the riddle. How can you give sleep to your eyelids till you know, not knowing whether you are in Christ or not, perhaps unreconciled, perhaps condemned already, perhaps on the brink of hell, perhaps with nothing more to keep you out than the breath that is in your nostrils or the circulating drop of blood which any one of 10,000 haps or mishaps may stop. Then the career is closed, your life story ended. I entreat thee, he said, I beseech thee, he said, shake off this sluggishness. Ask the Lord to say unto thy soul, I am thy salvation. 
And I wonder if there might be one here, as I said, or one who is watching on the live stream, that God is calling you to trust him, that God is calling you to himself, God is calling you to yield your life to him in repentant faith that he might cancel your debt as well. Have you received Christ Jesus as Lord? For those of us who have, we see he's done three things with this debt. I'll be brief here, but just to make sure we don't miss any of the glorious truths. You see he counseled it there in verse 14, the beginning, counseling it. Maybe your translation says he erased it, he blotted it, he wiped it clean. When they would write on papyrus, the ink had no acid. And so it would just sit on the top of the papyrus. When they wanted the document, was no longer needed. They would wipe it clean so that they can use it again. God has wiped clean. He has erased your record. And he done, he's done a second thing, as you see there at the end of verse uh, 14, is it? This he set aside. He wiped it clean, and he took it away. And then one last thing, for good measure, he nailed it to the cross. And so you had a certificate of debt. God took it from you. God then erased it. And then he, if you will, threw it in the fire. What does this mean for you today? Well, perhaps today's a good day for you. Perhaps today well, is not such a good day. Perhaps tomorrow will be difficult or great. I don't know. But you're going to face hard days and difficult days. And I want you to understand a lot of these truths and many others that we find in Scripture that no matter what your day brings, God is never, never, never punishing you for your sin. Now, he will discipline you for your sin as any good father will, but he will never punish you because all of his condemning wrath has been replaced by omnipotent grace for you. So if you just so happen this afternoon to be lying in a hospital bed and you wonder, has God now turned on me? Am I being punished? I simply want to remind you, your debt is canceled, your sin is forgiven. There might be some guilt in your heart. You might commit some wicked act today. You might totally lose it with the kids. You might, you, might, you might just totally plunge into some sin that you thought you had conquered and there's some guilty act of, of wickedness upon you and you wonder, will God judge me for this? Has God had enough? I mean, is there still more mercy after the 100,000th time I've actually done this? Is his mercy going to end for me because of this time? I tell you this morning, your debt is canceled. Your sins are forgiven. And so you, Christian, can raise your head in confidence. You can lie down in worry-free sleep. You could shake off your despair, for you can drink deeply from the cup of God's favor and his grace. Your debt is canceled. Your sins are forgiven. Thirdly, we see that Christ has disarmed the authorities. The authorities are disarmed, for we read in verse 15, I think somewhat surprisingly, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. If I were to ask you, hey, spend 10 minutes writing about all Jesus accomplished through his crucifixion. I wonder how many of us would find ourselves writing about his victory over, over spiritual enemies. And so if the first two points are somewhat uh, uh, reminders, and I trust they are. Perhaps there's a new nuance that we can glean from the work of Christ from this wonderful verse here in verse 15 that he triumphed over his enemies in the cross. The cross was the triumph over our spiritual adversaries, which is somewhat stunning, I think, because if you were passing by Calvary on Good Friday, you probably would not look at the naked, beaten, dying man on the cross and think, wow, he is really letting them have it. And what a triumph for him. In fact, I'm sure you would not have seen the triumph of Jesus, and I'm sure that his enemies only saw their own. The powers and authorities, the demonic forces, the spiritual opposition, Satan himself, 
where we know from Scripture were using all their means in order to bring out the, the judicial murder of Jesus of Nazareth, whether it be the false witnesses, the mocking, the scourging, the stripping, the jeering, the spitting, the taunting, the crucifying, and of course, yes, the dying. And when it was all said and done, so you can imagine, can't you, them all kind of patting each other on the back and self-congratulations, well, we are done with him now. They might even say, well, that wasn't as difficult as we thought it would be. I mean, there he hangs, this lifeless body, it's over. Well done, we finished him, that's the end of Jesus. And it was this great apparent victory of all of our enemies was actually, in unbelievable irony, their eternal defeat. The cross is actually the chariot of the triumph of Jesus. The cross is the throne upon which he reigned. It's John Calvin who said, there is no tribunal so magnificent, no throne so stately, no show of triumph so distinguished, no chariot so elevated as is the scaffold on which Christ subdued death and the devil and utterly trotted them under his feet. And if this is true, if the cross is the victory uh, of Jesus over his enemies, do you not see how impotent are those who would oppose us uh, and oppose Christ in his will to save you? Do you not see how helpless they are to keep Jesus from redeeming you? I mean, what can they possibly do to Jesus now? What more can they do to Christ? They threw everything they had against him. And all they succeeded in accomplishing was him dying for your sin. His demonstration over the power of death. All they accomplished, according to this verse, was their own public spectacle. He says, and put them to open shame. Their folly and their failure has now been publicly exposed. It was, it was the custom in, of the Roman generals in this day to provide victory parades for their victorious general. They were called triumphal processions. It's Plutarch. Uh, who will describe an ancient three-day event that was given to the Roman general Aemilius Paulus upon his return from capturing Macedonia. He said that there was great scaffolds erected along the boulevards in Rome, and all of Rome turned out for this three-day event, every one of them dressed in festive white. On the first day, 259 chariots displayed in procession the statutes, the pictures, and the colossal images taken from the enemies. On the second day, Innumerable wagons bore the armor and weapons of the disarmed enemies. Plutarch writes, all newly polished and glittering, the pieces were piled up so as to seem to be tumbled in heaps, carelessly and by chance. Helmets were thrown upon shields, coats of mail upon graves, bucklers and quivers of arrows lay huddled among horses' bits. Following the wagons came 3,000 carrying the enemy's silver and 750 vessels, followed by more treasure. On the third day came the captives preceded by 120 sacrificial oxen with their horns gilded and their heads adorned with ribbons and garlands. Then came the captured king's servants, weeping, with hands outstretched, begging for mercy. And then finally, the defeated king Perseus himself, bound and clad entirely in black, followed by endless prisoners. Finally came the victorious general. Plutarch writes, seated on the chariot, dressed in a robe of purple, interwoven with gold and holding a laurel branch in his right hand. All the army in like manner with bows of laurel in their hands divided in their bands and companies followed the chariot of their commander singing songs of triumph and praise of Emilius's deeds. It's this imagery that Paul has, I believe, in his mind when he says he disarmed the rulers and authorities 
putting them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross. See, our foes are defeated foes. They're disarmed foes. They're disgraced foes. They are all sentenced being the train of Christ's victory parade when at the end of the age Christ returns in the glory of his triumph. And what that means for us today is that yes, we still battle against our opponents. The Bible says we wrestle against principalities and authorities. But I remind you, in light of this truth, they are unarmed opponents. They have been disarmed. And so when the enemy comes brandishing his sword of accusation and say, well, what about that sin you did 10 years ago? What about that sin you did last night? Don't you understand that the sword that he's wielding, it's a, it's a foam sword. It's like the sword my kids play with. It cannot hurt you because the debt is canceled, the sins are forgiven, therefore your enemy is disarmed. Or he pulls out his gun of condemnation and he fires his bullets at you. You know, Christ will never accept one like you. I'm telling you, it's just a Nerf gun. It can't hurt you. He wiped your record clean. He set it aside. He nailed it to the cross. He punished Christ. He will not punish you. Therefore, we still fight against them. We still wrestle against them. But the mortal blow was struck at Calvary. And so you fight these battles, Christian, not worrying whether you can win. You fight these skirmishes knowing the war is over and the victory is assured. Christ for you has disarmed your opponents. He has triumphed over your enemies. He has forgiven your trespasses. He has washed your record clean. And he has done this all through the cross. And so today, celebrate these truths. And live in light of the victory we have in Jesus. Confident of what Christ has done for you. Our Father in heaven, we are once again amazed at the work of our Lord. What he would accomplish through his crucifixion. And would do so on our behalf. May it, we never tire of hearing our sins are forgiven. Our debt is canceled. Our enemies are defeated. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.